This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. These are experiences that lots of people have had, and I think shame is very unhelpful, and taboos can be very unhelpful. So maybe we should try and be (laughs) as brave as our poems. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, the editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'm going to be talking to Fiona Benson, who has five poems in the spring issue of the magazine, Fly, Village, Hide and Seek, Anatomical Dolls and Harris Specks. Fiona Benson's first collection, Bright Travellers, was published by Cape in 2014 and won the Geoffrey Faber Memorial Prize and the Seamus Heaney Centre First Collection Prize, as well as being shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Forward Prize for First Collection. She lives in Devon with her husband and their two daughters, and her second book, Vertigo and Ghost, is due from Cape next year, which is going to be very exciting. So, hello, Fiona. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It'd be great if you could just read one of the poems to start with. I think it'd be nice to hear Fly. Okay. Fly. Spring broke out, but my soul did not. It kept a sleet and inwards fog Forget-me-nots around the path, a speckled thrush. I spoke rarely and had a sour mouth. I couldn't make love. My husband lay beside me in the dark. I listened till he slept. I picked out all the bad parts of my day like sore jewels and polished them till they hurt. I wanted to take myself off like a misshapen jumper, a badly fitting frock. I wanted to peel it off and burn it in the garden with the rubbish, pushing it deep into the fire with a fork. And what sliver of my stripped and pelted soul there still remained, I'd have it gone, smoked out, shunned, fled not into the Milky Way, that shining path of souls, but the in-between, the nothing. But this overshoots the mark, this gnashing sorrow, so Wagnerian. It was more a vague grey element I moved in that kept me remote and slow, like a bound and stifled fly, half-paralysed, drug-dumb. Its soft and intermittent buzz, its torpid struggle in the spider's sick cocoon. What now if I call on the sublime? What bright angels of the pharmacon will come now if I call and rip this sticky gauze and tear me out? That was really beautiful, thank you. So great to hear it read aloud. I was really excited when I read all your poems when they came in the post. When you receive a batch of poems, they don't necessarily all sort of feel of a piece. So like it was clear that you were working on a collection and they all sort of came together very sort of powerfully, I felt. I wanted to ask you a few questions specifically about Fly. There's this rhetorical question, what now if I call on the sublime? What angels of the pharmacon will come now if I call and rip the sticky gauze and tear me out? I was really interested in this kind of reference to the sublime because it's something that I guess doesn't get talked about that much in contemporary poetry and it's something that when I was sort of first reading poetry as an undergraduate I was studying the romantics and the sublime was this like big theme that we had to sort of think about and talk about and it was sort of like oh the sublime 
and that doesn't really get talked about so much now but obviously it's such a key thing to poetry in a sort of broad way this sort of turning towards something that we can't fully grasp how does that work for you what kind of answer would that rhetorical question have I guess so I kind of feel sometimes at the end of a poem that you're expected to reach towards this sublime thing and I suppose I try and think critically about that and don't take that as the that's an easy way to end a poem almost is to reach for that and I think the poem's sort of asking that question about itself you know what happens now with this poem as well as with the state it's describing if you kind of reach for something transcendental I've been thinking about that a bit myself like what the lyric is meant to do and that's something that seems to be being talked about a bit at the moment with the idea of lyric shame and is there something sort of copping out or something if you you go right I'm gonna come to this sort of beautiful like you're saying transcendental ending is that not really true to the experience right but then I sort of feel like you do do that anyway and that type of thing can be so satisfying right when it happens and it's genuine that's great I just don't want to force it so it's you you know it's something from outside you isn't it when that kind of reaction or response happens I think that poem is just questioning its own sublime rhetoric in a way and saying oh that's too Wagnerian it's more quotidian than that I mean it's a description of depression so the depression itself is grimier and more stifled and not this big starry imagery Ginsberg has this thing about how all you need to write a, a, a series of epiphanies in your life which I kind of like sounds, yeah that sounds amazing yeah so you just all you need is a handful of epiphanies and you've got all you need all the material you need for writing for the rest of your life basically <laughs> which I, I kind of think that poetry does respond to epiphany or epiphanic moments or but do you not think that the quotidian can be an epiphany as well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, of course it can. Like he's got that sunflower sutra, hasn't he? Which is just an ordinary sunflower. And it's yeah. a gorgeous poem about something very ordinary. And But also, I mean, I suppose he's writing about it in a very heightened way. And it's also, you can also write poems in a very quotidian way, can't you? You can write mm. about the quotidian in a quotidian way. And that's valid too. Is Ginsberg someone that you turn to or like an influence... Because I read somewhere, I think, that you, you'd you been reading a lot of Walt Whitman, or is that quite yeah, a while ago? Yeah, I love Walt Whitman. <laughs> I just recently started, I mean, I have read him historically, but I just sort of got back into him recently, yeah. and it's, yeah. So I guess some of the poems in Bright Travellers are more standard, and a lot of the poems in Vertigo and Ghost are more like this kind of running line, or, and I think that is Whitman's fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Ginsberg too. I, I do love him. I suppose that's the the big influence of those Americans that they do this really long, breathless line where there's just this like bursting out of form that yeah. doesn't seem to need containing, and that yeah, um, because your poems do have a they're more slender than that, but they're sort mm. of running. Like I like that phrase "running line." It, they just sort of pace through themselves or something. Yeah. To go back to Fly, I was also interested in that quote, what bright angels of the pharmacon will call now. I was really interested in that phrase, the pharmacon, and wasn't something I'd really come across before, so I looked it up. 
and what I found said it simultaneously means remedy, poison and scapegoat. It's like a philosophical concept. And that in Derrida considered that writing could be a pharmacon. Mm. I just wondered if you had those kind of meanings in mind or what it was meaning to you. Well, so I first came across the term because our friend Eric Langley, who's a poet, but he's also an early modern scholar and teacher. So I first came across it years ago when he was talking about it and he was talking about Shakespeare's pharmacon, the remedy that is also a poison. I did know about the scapegoat thing as well because I was kind of thinking of Rilke's angels, but Rilke's angels being kind of other people who have fallen or with depression or that was kind of in the background for me, I think. So who are your angels here and how are they going to break through this state? Mm. And I think I was thinking specifically also of kind of modern day, I was playing on the idea of pharmacy as well and pharmaceuticals and how we use those and how they can, there's still this idea of them being remedies, but also poisons or having, yeah. Yeah. Such a great word to link those two concepts because the more kind of contemporary illusion was what struck me first and then I thought well no this is clearly a word that has other connotations and I think in terms of thinking about whether writing is cathartic or something it's very interesting to think about it as both a remedy and a poison right I suppose that's another question like do you think it does have a cathartic sort of element to it or I think it can do I know that in Bright Travellers I wrote about miscarriage and I know that making that experience into something with words helped me handle that experience Mm. and feel less owned by that experience and more like I I could get my head I don't know my head round or yeah no I know so it can be a way of coping with things or understanding them or understanding what's going on and that yeah breaking through to something or breaking out of a particular state so for example with depression if if you're depressed, you're probably not able to read or write or concentrate in that way. So kind mm. of writing in itself can be an indication of healing or can lead you through to healing. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. I like your phrasing of breaking through because that sort of seemed to be something that was like a recurring theme in your work. So you've got at the end of Fly this question of what bright angels will come now if I call and rip the sticky gauze and tear me out. So it's like a tension between inside and outside. And I feel like there's examples of that elsewhere in village. Um, Yeah, it's funny, the village one, I was thinking about that when you were talking about Pharmacon, because, I mean, that's a physical place outside our village that you walk up and up and and then I go trespassing. (laughs) I remember taking Rilke up there, <laughs> reading the uh, the first of the Juno elegies out loud up there to these kind of lovely trees that are up there. And that's yeah. so nice. So in my head, that those two poems are connected in a strange way with those angels well, of the pharmacon. <laughs> well, it's almost like the village answers the question that you're asking at the end of Fly. You haven't read Village aloud, so listeners won't know what's happening but the speaker is walking up a hill and uh, overlooks this landscape in some ways sort of quite idyllic and also sort of 
I guess, a bit lonely and there's the whole sublime thing going on and then looks back down towards home, like nestled in the sort of valley. And I feel like the inside-outside thing is then acted out. The poem starts off with these a sort of interior monologue that's a bit sort of negative and then the journey sort of is like breaking through that and looking at the wider world and sort of realizing this one's kind of insignificance in a way although in a a good way so to move on to another question that's related in your first collection you have a series of poems love letter to vincent which respond to the paintings of vincent van gogh and i read an interview with grant in which you spoke very beautifully about an image of pushing a series of panels and finding one that opened out into this kind of open space and that being a sort of moment of creative release, that the experience of writing ekphrastic poetry was a bit like that. I mean, I hope I'm not putting words into your mouth. So, uh, yeah, I was interested to ask you a bit about ekphrastic poetry and if that's something that you do often? Is it something that's that you find fruitful? Obviously, it must depend on the particular artwork or the circumstances. Yeah. Um, there isn't any crisis in Vertigo and Ghost, but there are some poems that kind of use myth in a similar way. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure how it's different to responding to and something you see in nature or something mm-hmm. to do with the body. It, it's just something that opens into something else or breaks through into something else that the poem needs to say. Or So those Vincent poems just came really easily, actually. I remember looking through one of these cheap <laughs> books of prints and that's what came out. And I, th- I think it enabled me to say things that I probably say in this book in a more raw way. Because, you know, the Vincent poems use a persona and that's a kind of mask and it's very freeing and I found that really useful and I did try and do a little bit of ekphrasis for this book I went and um had a look at some things but Zeus was shouting in my ear so. <laughs> yeah well we're gonna talk about that a bit later Fiona's gonna read another of her poems which is from a series is the series called Zeus or because yeah you... it's called Zeus it's the first half substantial half of the book well I'm really excited to read the rest of it because you had one of those in this issue and there's there were a few in the recent issue of Poetry London but I think it's interesting that you said that your new collection Vertigo and Ghost doesn't actually have that much ekphrasis and use the word raw I just suppose I wondered how the experience of writing that book was different if it was different to writing the first book I know for me it was a very different experience. I guess I'm sort of personally interested in mm. how other people. Well, so so Vertig- I mean, Bright Travellers was written over more than ten years, and it was completely different. So some of those poems go back so far. A lot of them felt very tried and tested for me. So in a way, it felt less risky actually because they'd been published, and I'd held on to them for a long time and. And because they kind of spanned such a large and formative chunk of my life, they were more, I guess, disparate in their experiences or, you know, there was some about being frustrated and lonely in my early 20s and then there was some about, you know... Yeah, well, being lonely and frustrated. In your late 20s and so on. <laughs> yeah. But with this book, it's been quite different. So it's been written over four years, but some of it's been quite in- intense. So 
the Zeus poems. With the Zeus poems, I hadn't had that experience before of just being inhabited for quite a long time in maybe a way I wasn't entirely comfortable with. And it felt risky and dangerous and (laughs) kind of feels risky and dangerous putting them out there because they talk about abuse and rape and there's all this kind of me too stuff going on at the moment and I think there will be some kind of backlash and I feel like I'm stepping into that a bit with these poems yeah I feel very exposed by them and felt very exposed writing them and they came from not an easy place I think that's sometimes the way that when it feels risky for the writer it's actually where the sort of strongest most powerful material is I mean that's my experience as a reader I suppose when I felt more sort of nervous about putting things out there that it was a poem that I felt that it needed to be written or mm. something did you feel that between your second book and your first book it felt riskier yeah for me and that but I guess that's why I was asking you about how it was for you because the word raw struck me because I had the sense of like I think I've noticed that across some other people's second collections that it's almost like the first collection you're kind of peeling off like a layer, a top layer or something. After that, then something more raw is emerging and maybe in a way is more interesting, but that's for other people to decide. I totally can relate to those feelings. I think it's, I think most writers would do that, you know, the more kind of difficult the material feels personally, then it always is challenging to put it out there. Mm. But the payoff is that I think readers respond on a level that it means something to them and actually when someone reads powerful work it's it's happening inside them it's not actually anything to do with the poet in a way you can sort of try and let it go yeah (laughs) in the words of a famous disney princess (laughs) (laughs) turning into a a therapy session um well yeah but i mean you were talking about shame a little bit earlier weren't you yeah, these are experiences that lots of people have had and I think shame is very unhelpful and taboos can be very unhelpful. So maybe we should try and be as brave as our poems. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, well, I was going to ask a bit more about shame because it seems to be a topic that's just kind of around at the moment. Faber's just put out a couple of books Richard Scott's book and Sophie Collins' book that both in very different ways are kind of thinking about experiences of shame. There was a book last year, Nuar Al-Sadir's book, Fourth Person Singular, that was thinking about lyric shame, questioning what happens between the eye of the poem and the writer and how you sort of negotiate that, which I guess is sort of what we're talking about in terms of Mm. feeling uncomfortable about being identified with your work. And there's this great W.S. Graham line It's good to mention W.S. Graham because it's his centenary this Mm. year. Certain experiences seem to not want to go into language, maybe because of shame or the reader's shame. And you've got this line in Harris Specs, I am done with shame, which feels just like a really powerful battle cry or something. Mm. Do you think there's a way in which putting things out there that are shameful can actually relieve the shame or do they compound it? And maybe it's going back to the Pharmacon question. It's like both maybe I was thinking when you um when I got the questions about email I was thinking about Kayo Chingon he's got that preface line about what does he say oh yeah what is the subconscious process of healing what does it take perhaps it is something like how old schoolers would say you heal from a snake bite having to spit out the venom again and again until there is no more 
he's quoting Saul Williams, and that's in Kumakanda. I thought that was kind of interesting, like spitting it out again and again until it's gone. I think these are things that we shouldn't be feeling shame about, basically. I think there are things in our society like miscarriage or depression or abuse against women that is stigmatised and we feel shame about it and that shame is misplaced. It either doesn't belong there or there is should be no shame at all. So maybe by putting things out there it's like a combined effort to right to break down <laughs> break down shame <laughs> and silence around things like silence around a miscarriage is kind of an easy example for me to talk about there's a lot of kind of shame around that because you know everybody says when you're pregnant don't tell anybody until mm. you're basically in the clear and then if you lose a baby before <laughs> then nobody's even known you're pregnant and I think that that's really hard because then you have this huge loss in your life to navigate People haven't travelled that journey with you or, you know. Yeah, I've always thought that's a strange thing because if you did have a miscarriage, you'd want to tell people. Right, because so, you'd need you know, some why support, have right? told them to begin with? Yeah. Um, but, there, yeah, that's definitely a topic about which, like, a lot of women's issues that is just really not spoken about right. that much. And yet I find when I read, I mean, talking about being as brave as our poems, I kind of do feel a responsibility to read those poems and to keep them in my reading repertoire do you have repertoires I don't yeah, know I think so <laughs> because those are the poems that people will come up to me and say that spoke for me in some way or because they're things that aren't put into words a lot mm. and I think if we begin to then is it something you think about the way that people respond to your work when you're writing does that go into it at all or yeah, is it... no I was thinking about that I think I'm really selfish actually I just I just write to find the poem and for the poem yeah. to emerge and I think I keep it quite secret and so nobody ever has to see see it so I'm just writing not even for myself but to find out what the poem is there mm. so thinking about who's going to read it comes much much later and I guess yeah. towards the end of it I'll start thinking like my first reader, David Williams, will he, what will he think of this? And lately, because he likes quite traditional stuff, he hasn't been liking it at all. <laughs> so I've kind of been having to override that internalised editorial yeah. voice slightly. And then, you know, Robin, will Robin like this? And I, I've got, yeah, Robin Robertson, I've got no idea whether he'll, he's going to like something or not. And then I guess the next step is, do I want to send this out or not? Who am I comfortable sending it to? But then when I'm reading, I do think about what should I read and what will have relevance. And You mean like live reading? Live reading, yeah. yeah. And also, I do think later on I start thinking about clarity and trying... I don't come from a very intellectual background or whatever. So my dad, for example, thinks my poems are horrendously complicated and difficult <laughs> which I always find a bit depressing because I do try and make them quite clear <laughs> but perhaps yeah, they're not that's always a thing isn't it because of poetry being what it is there's this kind of fear of it among people who maybe aren't natural readers of poetry but it can be sort of odd that you yeah. have all these people who are close to you who just are like that's that weird thing that they do yeah so. like my husband that's what he thinks that's that weird <laughs> thing she does <laughs> Sure, he hasn't read all the poems in my last book, let alone this one. What brought you to poetry in the first place? I mean, is this, were you writing from a young age or did you come to it a bit later on? Are there any sort of writers that 
were formative for you? I've had to answer this question before, Emily. Uh, yes, I'm sure you have. <laughs> for, for example, for the forward prize, we had to write, I expect you did as well, you have to write a kind of little mini essay for them. I just had a baby, <laughs> so I was writing this mini essay while feeding a five-week-old child, Rose. Rose had just been born. And I tried basically to demystify it all a bit. I think people look for prodigies, don't they? And um, I did have little flashes of poetry that I wrote to myself from, you know, from a normally young age. But I wasn't in the kind of background where writing is normal and you weren't scribbling away in the womb (laughs) no no I wasn't and I kind of said this in my interview and it got slightly edited to say that I started keeping a notebook at 17 when I heard about somebody else who was writing that gave me permission which is true because I had written these little scraps of things and little poems here and there but I certainly didn't think I could be a writer I certainly didn't think that well into my 20s, to be honest. Like, it was something that I did and needed to do. But I studied English literature and you you look at all these poets and love what they do, but they seem, that's always seemed very unattainable to me, to be honest. I'm not one of the confident people of the world. (laughs) And um, so in this thing for the forward, I was trying to demystify that process a bit and say, you know, there are things that have given me permission to write and one of these was hearing about this person who later became my boyfriend actually who was my first boyfriend who wrote poems and me thinking oh I could work on that and I think that's important that I mean we've all worked so damn hard I think to get to the point of having a book Mm. and um I found Sylvia Plath she's a great figure for me not only because she's a brilliant writer but also because she talks about whipping herself into a poet, you know, it's a practice work thing for her. It's not something that magically happens. And I think it's really damaging when you don't see the practice or the work that goes mm. into attaining a certain level. Like if my daughter sees somebody just playing the piano magically and doesn't really understand how many hours of practice go into that, she thinks it's something you can just sit down and do, you know? And yeah. it isn't. Yeah. None of it is. None of these arts are yeah. like dancers. The <laughs> lifetimes they put into being able to move like that. I had an amazing English teacher like most of us do so mine was called Dr Hanson and major influences were all people that she introduced me to really so Emily Dickinson who mm. I studied in the sixth form and loved and Elliot T.S. Eliot which I think we all lots of us studied at school and is kind yeah. of in our DNA even though we don't own up to him so much now yeah and Heaney I studied that was part of the A-level syllabus and fell in love with him and then from Heaney that took me to Hughes and Plath But then there are people, you know, I think it's not something that stops. I think there are people who keep entering you as formative writers, like we talked about Walt Whitman, Mm, um, but also people like Sharon Olds and Lucille Clifton who write about all sorts of things, like bodies and also women. Yeah, I mean, I think Sharon Olds is such an important poet in terms of her freedom about in terms of what she writes about yeah that that kind of like you were talking about permission I think that's so important and sort of seeing other people writing about things that you might not think were a valid topic in quote marks for poetry I mean Lucille Clifton's stuff is amazing her work about the body but then I Mm. feel like you have to be careful as women with that as well because Lucille Clifton she gets seen as 
a poet of the body, but is yeah. also such a profoundly political and often intellectually rigorous poet as well. And I, well, yeah, that's I suppose that's have to not, be careful. <laughs> it's not for the writer to be careful. No. It's for the yeah, exactly. The it's for the readers. The, yeah, the readers. Yeah. But I think that's really kind of good to hear about hear you sort of talking about the work that goes into becoming a published poet. Because it's not really something that people talk about that much. You know, it is something that involves a lot of sort of graft yeah. um, as well as inspiration. Or whatever. Right. Yeah, a um, single poem is both those things, isn't it? It's inspiration and it's draft. draft. Well, it's not all of them, but yeah. some of them you just have to work so hard to find what they're trying to say. Do you know the Natalie Goldberg writing down the bones? I just remember that being on our reading list for the Emlet, talking about the practice of writing. And she says, this is the practice school of writing. I love that. (laughs) And she's so good at just kind of keeping on with it. Do you, in your own sort of practice, try and write regularly? Or is it more like you have sort of bursts and then periods of fallowness? I do try, but it's not always possible. So I think there are these periods of fallow periods and I find them quite distressing I don't know do you I find them quite distressing and Mm. I don't really like not writing but yeah I think they are a natural part of the process I mean that's the other thing reading I've always been even if I wasn't always like scribbling in the room I think I was reading avidly yeah you're taking in all that kind of necessary nourishment right that's certainly something that happens in the fallow times as well and try and read a lot yeah Mm. well let's finish on another poem i think you were going to read anatomical dolls Mm -hmm. zeus anatomical dolls it's hard to explain let me show you with the anatomical dolls they have buttons for eyes and details under their pants you wouldn't believe. Look underneath at the girl's folded labia, vagina, the tucked-in silk and string umbilical of a pull-down poppet fetus, or the male's miniature penis, his cotton-bag scrotum, his sphincter ringed in little puckered stitches. So the girl doll took off her frilly knickers and the boy doll pushed down his trousers and did this and you might think it was love if you hadn't seen act one the male doll playing punch Judy trembling and bruised her bloody nose Tell me what's the word for this this spreading of the legs and lips to delay violence and where's the rough music all my Sharivari pots and wooden spoons to out you, Zeus, to drive you through the streets with songs that find a name for you at last, you filthy pimp, you animal, you rapist. Wow, thank you so much. It's been really great talking to you. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.